Bugs, 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 bugs. Let's talk about books, baby. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about books, baby. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about books, baby. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about books, baby. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About Books, baby. Uh, oh, shit. That's Kayla. <laughs> and that's Lindsay. Mm. And today we are going to be discussing some uh, pretty the- feminist books. Yes. Some pretty like, I mean, I know most of our books are like strong female characters, but this time it's like, nah, we want some feminist books. We both read books that are kind of like alternate realities if there were females involved instead of males. So I read The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, which revolves around the question, what if Jesus had a wife? And it it really made me think. It really, really made me think. And I read Cursed, which was written by Thomas Wheeler, and it was illustrated by Frank Miller. That might sound weird, might sound like I'm, I'm reading a children's book, but it's because this is actually a graphic novel. 403 pages, some of those are full of words, and some of those are awesome pictures that look like they came from a comic book. Cursed is about if the sword Excalibur chose a queen instead of a king. So, uh, Lindsay, that was, yeah, perfectly explained. What if? What if? So, speaking of what if, what if you couldn't go to sleep early and you just had trouble falling asleep early and then you, you ended up waking up and you were just tired all day? Well, that's what I was going through. So I bought these little vegan melatonin gummies, right? nice. And I was, like, really excited to try them out. And so I took them last night, and I was like, I'm just going to read until I go to sleep. And I passed out in, like, 20 minutes. Nice. I started reading sideways because I was like, I was like, (laughs) I can't. Oh, and I would go back and reread things, and I was like, okay, (laughs) just, like, chill. Chill, Kaylee. You're fine. And so I fell asleep. I woke up nine hours later and I was so excited. I was like, great, I got this. I'm going to have a really well-rested day today. And then I ate my breakfast and by 8.30, I was asleep again. There should be, Amazing. There should be a warning on the yeah. melatonin gummies. This supplement will knock your ass out for the entire day. How do you feel now after you've woken up a second time? Let me ask you a question. I'm going to answer your question with a question. How do I look? I mean, I think you look fine. Shut up. You look great. Yeah, you know, you do. I mean, you look maybe like you – are you wearing your jammies? No, I'm wearing workout clothes. (laughs) Oh, okay. I mean, same thing, right? I'm wearing my jammies and I didn't just wake up. So what happened though was I went to sleep. I went to sleep again and I slept for like two more hours and I woke up. I called my sister-in-law who's a pharmacist. I was like, Rima, I took melatonin gummies and I went back to sleep again for two hours. Why am I so tired? She goes, yeah, it'll do that to you. (laughs) So she recommended that I go for a run or a walk. And I was like, this is God's way of telling me that I need to exercise more. Yeah. Like, I feel like it is. I, anyways, I went on like a two mile run walk thing, came back and was awake enough to 
continue my track. Well, there you go. Yeah. Are you going to take another one tonight or are you going to take a break? To be honest, I'm not I'm not 100% sure that I'm actually awake right now. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. Okay. Keep me updated. Keep I me will. updated. I'll, I'll text you to check in on you just in case. I appreciate that. I will say, though, those gummies are bomb. They are so good. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those melatonin things did some weird stuff to me. I woke myself up because I was talking in my sleep. Oh. And I was like, I looked around and I was like, you're, you're like, crazy. Go back to sleep. Happened twice. That was me. Oh yeah. my gosh. And then when I went to sleep the second time for like that two hour nap, I woke up because I was biting my tongue. Like really you hard. You were biting your tongue? Oh like really God. hard. Like I was like, dang, I'm gonna I'm gonna try them one more time. And truly, if uh if those gummies do me any harm tonight, I'm gonna stop them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. Horrible. So uh what about you? What have you been up to? Well, I wanted to actually, I found out this cool new thing. I've always used, well, not always, probably since like 2018, I've been using Goodreads to track my books, how many books I've read, what books I've read and when, you know, ratings, whatnot. Never really felt great about it because it is an Amazon product and, you know, that I'm trying to do away with Amazon, except for like the urgent things that I need. I was still using it because... I had no other options. And I just found out about the story graph. Um, and it's still in beta. So their website is beta.thestorygraph.com, I think. I think you can just Google the story graph beta and it'll pop up. But basically, you also get like personalized lists from them. It's a community like Goodreads without the Amazon affiliate. And it's very it's very user-friendly. I've always thought that Goodreads is a little clunky and I do not like their app at all. It's super clunky, super slow. And so the StoryGraph, I'm really loving their user interface and you can upload your Goodreads library to the StoryGraph. So I, I exported my library and uploaded it and they have so many new users because it's actually, um, it was created by a black woman, uh, created the StoryGraph. So people are super excited, obviously, to join the StoryGraph instead of Goodreads. She just had an overload of people join. But you upload your Goodreads stuff and everything is there. And then you just use it like you would Goodreads. There, it's the same, you know, you, you select a book, want to read, currently reading, you know, shelving and, and things like that. So um, challenges, how many books you want to read in 2020, whatever. So just wanted to give them a shout out for being, for having such a cool user interface and for not being affiliated with Amazon. <laughs> um, I'm super, super excited about that. And I saw so that I spent my morning, I was exporting my Goodreads library and kind of going through their website and looking at it. So I'm very excited about that. Very cool. So I am going to be talking about The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd. So I gave this book five stars mainly just because it really made me think. It was one of those books that had me kind of questioning things and just made me really curious. I did a lot of my own research after I read the book, mainly because I was just so super curious. So the book follows Anna, and she is living in Naz, not Nazareth, living around wherever Jesus was. Bethlehem? 
No, Jesus was only born in Bethlehem. I think he's from Nazareth. Yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Look at me. I'm, I grew up in church and I have no idea. But she is, it starts off with her being 14 years old. Her family is a little bit more wealthy than a lot of the people around town. And her father works for someone really fucking rich. And like on the, <laughs> on the, on the wrong side of the biblical, you know, what the Bible you know, he wasn't, he's not Jewish, he's Roman or whatever. And yeah, you know, yeah. People in the Bible don't like the Romans. And so, <laughs> it's he, true. That's what they say. They're very rich. And Anna kind of only knows about that more wealthy life. And her parents plan to marry her off to a, an old widower who has two girls who are basically the same age as Anna. And it was, pretty much just a transaction between her father and the man. The man had things that her father wanted. And so they included that in the marriage dowry or whatever the fuck it's called. And But in the moment that she is meeting this man for the first time, like in the marketplace and her dad is doing this trade or whatever and like coming to the terms, she catches the eye of a man across the way and she's like oh who like she's very curious about him i guess he's cute which makes me a little uncomfortable and later while her dad is doing the transaction for her marriage she kind of lashes out and runs away and two roman guards come to find her and basically she falls and the man that she had seen across the way was Jesus and he helps her up and then the Roman guards push him down and she can see that he got hurt but she's being pulled away and she's like I wonder if I'm ever gonna see this man again and at this moment so Anna is 14 and Jesus is about 20 is what she says basically she's a very smart girl she can read and write which is not normal for girls in that time and she actually knows like multiple languages which is really cool and her father allows it but then once she is you know ready to be married and the marriage thing is all signed basically her father's like you got to cut it out you're not allowed to do this anymore and they like, like burn being dumber <laughs> yeah right, right he's like burn everything and i guess when girls were married off there was like a period of time before they were actually like married and so there's like a month where basically Anna is trying to do like everything she can not to marry this guy and back in those days someone related to the man that was going to be married came to inspect the girl to make sure that there were no flaws or whatever on her skin or if she was sick or whatever and Anna makes a joke that like she has a scar like somewhere on her breast and the guy she's gonna she's supposed to marry it's his sister that comes and the lady like points to her and she's like what is this and she's like it's leprosy it's totally as a joke and the lady like freaks out and then her mom's like it's a joke it's a joke and the lady is like she'll do and then walks away it's like very dehumanizing and just t absolutely terrible and she basically gets out of marrying this guy because pretty much a plague, much like COVID-19, sweeps the area and a bunch of people get sick. Everyone's quarantining themselves, you know, staying locked in, but like whole families are being like just dying from this sickness. And Nathaniel, the man that she was supposed to marry, gets sick and dies. And 
Anna goes, yeah, she's like, boo-hoo. Anna goes to the funeral and she literally cannot contain her excitement of getting away from this man, basically. And like one of his daughters like sees her smiling or something and she's all like pissed about it and whatever. So of course that leaves room for her to be married off to someone else. But unfortunately, because they were already betrothed. She's technically a widow now, even though she had never married him, like actually, or ever you know, slept with him or whatever. So most men don't want to marry a widower. And so basically she's like, fine, I'll just be a spinster at 14, whatever. <laughs> she catches Jesus's eye again. She like finds him and um, lots of things transpire kind of in that, in the meantime, but they get married and she moves to Nazareth with him and pretty much learns what it's like to be fucking poor. (laughs) She's like, I have to actually like work every day. You know, she has no time for her writing. And I really liked, so kind of beyond, the story is very predictable in the way that like, if you know the Bible and you know the story of Jesus, you know where everything's kind of going, but it's not predictable because you don't know who Anna is. She's a fictional character. You don't know where her story is going, but you can kind of piece it together. And I really... I really liked Sue Monk Kid did a lot of calls to like what Jesus would do and say. So like he'd have little conversations with Anna and mention something and I'm like, oh well that's like in the Bible. Like that's what he did he did that later or whatever. And I thought it was interesting. So Up until the very end when Jesus is crucified and he is dead and the women, his mother and uh, Mary Magdalene and Anna, even though she's not real, but all the women who were kind of part of Jesus's life are in the tomb and basically preparing him for burial or what they didn't bury. They were put, everyone was put in tombs then, but first century life. And Anna ends up So she had been married to him for years and years and like 15 years at this point, right? Is the timeline. And she ends up leaving before Jesus is resurrected. And I find this interesting mainly for the purpose of Jesus, whether you believe in him or not or whatever, was both God and man. You know, that's what Christians believe. That is the basis of of who Jesus is. He was both God and he was 100% man, 100% God. And Sue Monk Kid really wanted to focus on the human aspects of Jesus. And there's no record of Jesus between the time that he's like 13 to when he's like 32, right? And so a lot of the book takes place in that time period when Jesus is like 20 to when he's 32 and actually starts his ministry with John the Baptist and all of his disciples. And I thought it was interesting that in the book, Anna doesn't witness Jesus being resurrected or even hears about it because she only knows the human part of him. And while she did get to witness him being like, oh, maybe I am the Messiah or whatever, like he's like, I talked to God. Not that she wasn't fully convinced, but to her, he was just her husband. And so I I really appreciated this little part that she left before he was resurrected, you know, three days later. And then she never found out that he was ever resurrected because she goes to a town really far away. She's in Egypt. impatient. Yes. (laughs) She was like, I'm out of (laughs) here. So I just, I found that very interesting. And I also, even though it is completely fictional, especially with what's going on right now, I'm seeing so, so many of, and not all, of course, 
but I'm seeing a lot of my Christian friends not wanting to side with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, citing a lot of different reasons, but they're pretty much keeping quiet on the issue and not either saying anything or if they are saying anything, they're saying all lives matter or whatever. And I really liked seeing what the idea of Jesus would be completely human, like humanized, not put up on this pedestal of the Bible is. There's so many different aspects to Jesus more than just like going to church and being like, oh, thank you, Jesus or whatever. I feel like especially white Christians have really well, first off, we've whitewashed him. He was not white and he was murdered. He was a colored man murdered by white officials. He was murdered by the Romans. And I just, I think that a lot of Christians forget about that. There's a lot of things in the Bible, actually, that Christians conveniently are forgetting about because Jesus is this, you know, I'm not saying that he he's not, but obviously he is like, God, and he is what we're supposed to be, you know, thanking Jesus because he died for our sins or whatever. But there were so many other things that he taught and that he stood for, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself and, you know, things like that, that I feel like a lot of Christians and people who are very religious are forgetting during this movement. Um, Yeah. It's like the whole, what would Jesus do? Yes. Yes. I mean, I truly think about that sometimes because, like, of course, like, I'm Muslim. So, like, with us, we do believe that he was just a man, but we believed he was a prophet. So, we believe he – we do put him up on a pedestal, but we put him on more of a human pedestal. And and we don't worship him, but it is kind of a – even with us, we go about our daily tasks thinking, like, what would our prophets do? Because they were the best of humanity. They really didn't sin. And we're like, what would they do right now? And like, right. that's what we're supposed to think. And so like, that's why sometimes I see these, these videos of Karens being like, oh my goodness, you're doing this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, really, what would Jesus do right now? Like, if you're really like a God fearing woman, like you act like you are, what would Jesus do? Right. That's it. And I really love the portrayal of him in this book because it showed him being friends with the people who were of different religions than him and of different descents and who were disabled and who had leprosy and all these different things. He was okay to be around everybody. He wanted to be around everybody. And I think I really needed that. I've actually seen a lot of funny memes lately and I it kind of made me... Uh, It really related to what I was reading in the book. And so I actually wanted to read one of the things that I found because I liked it so much. I don't know whose original words it is, but it was on Eddie Hosen's Instagram page. And I actually found it. One of my old church friends actually posted it. So it says, white Christianity suffers from a bad case of the Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Haman. They are Peter, but never Judas. 
They are the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people, to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society, and it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work. Yes. Slap back at that. And I saw that and reading this book really made me have those thoughts, but I couldn't put them into words until I saw that. And it is just, I'm just kind of mad at the way that I was raised and the way that the Christians in my life preach Christianity and doing good and, you know, all this other stuff. And they don't want to be on the right side of history right now. And they don't truly believe that Black Lives Matter. And they don't truly want to help people who need it. I think that if you're going to read the Bible, you need to read it in a way that is all-encompassing. You cannot just one-side it and be like, these are all the good things and I'm going to, you know, only talk about these good things. And um, I actually saw another thing that made me think and <laughs> it's, an, it's another meme. So this one, it's completely sarcastic. I support the goals of Moses and hashtag let my people go, but I'm disappointed to see what used to be peaceful protests take such a violent turn, sad face. Politely asking Pharaoh to free the Israelites from slavery is more effective than unleashing plague after plague on Egypt. And now I hear that a lot of Israelites are out destroying their own communities by tagging their houses with some sort of gang sign that's painted with animal blood? What does that even accomplish? I agree that a whole that a whole people being in bondage and having their babies killed is kind of messed up, but it's still never okay to destroy people's property with hail and locusts. They need to show more respect to the people who've been systematically slaughtering them. Violence never solved anything. Sad, sad face. Two wrongs never make a right sad face sad face <laughs> and i think that the bible and jesus and god and you know whatever you want to put under this umbrella of christianity is so whitewashed and so one-sided and so you know obviously i'm getting off into a tangent from what the book is actually about but, but i mean it's something that it totally connects it's really it really does connect and that was yes. a hilarious was that a tweet no it was just another one i don't know who posted it originally it was someone screenshotted the text and then posted it on their story or whatever but reading this book just had me really, really thinking. And actually, I became really interested in just everything about like the first century and how Anna as a woman, and this is, these are some of the things that I didn't like was she was super, super feminist. She was just like, you know, after Jesus died, she was like, I'm just going to be alone and I'm going to read and write and blah, blah, blah. And she was very defiant to her father and X, Y, Z. And it, honestly, it's just not realistic. There was no foundation for her to jump off of because that just didn't exist. Girls didn't defy their fathers. And if they did, they were killed or whatever. And so I, I found it unrealistic in that regard. So I didn't like because it made me uncomfortable, but her and Jesus did have sex. They were married. And it really did have me thinking about how we, again, Jesus is put on this pedestal as this pure, clean, good person. 
who was on earth and he never had a wife, which again, how do we know, you know, who reported that Jesus didn't have a wife? You know, like, obviously it's not mentioned in the Bible, but again, the Bible doesn't, there's no record and there, it doesn't cover anything about him or he's like 32 and starts his ministry. And men in that time, when they hit 20 years old, they were expected to get married. Mm-hmm. And obviously Jesus could have defied that and just been the outcast and the odd one like that's obviously totally realistic in that regard but also what if he did have a wife and what if she maybe died young and he didn't remarry or you know there's a lot of different scenarios I feel like that could have happened that he could have had a wife and there's a reason why it didn't get reported and and then it was passed down that he never had a wife or whatever Mm -hmm. he does have sex with Anna they're they're not it's not detailed at all in the book because I would have been like this is blasphemy (laughs) I can't do it (laughs) Um, but um, you know it mentions that like they have sex and whatnot. And she actually gets pregnant at one point and the baby is stillborn. And so that kind of helps. At first I was like, oh, where are we going? Because Jesus at least didn't have kids, you know, or yeah. like if he did have kids. And so it was interesting because she was kind of doing her own birth control and then it didn't work. And so they had a baby and then she was like very strict about her birth control after that. And because she was like, I don't want to have kids, which again, another thing that is just kind of weird for that time period. So I think also that Christians put Jesus on this pedestal and the idea that he's so pure, so clean, he never had sex. I think that that really ruins sexuality for Christians. And obviously we have this huge, this big idea of virginity and, you know, being clean for your husband, but the same is not expected for men. The thing is like, it is expected for men, but it's not upheld. Mm -hmm. that's the problem yes exactly like people are like oh boys will be boys whatever but if their daughter you know has sex before marriage it's a huge um deal and i think that they christians really uphold this jesus was clean and pure and whatever and it really ruins sexuality for people in the church i think i mean i personally had a lot of issues with sex when when I first had it because I was taught that I was going to go to hell if I had sex before marriage and I was taught that it was going to it was going to ruin me and you know all this other stuff and sometimes I still struggle with it and I've been married for 3 years. Yeah. I was never taught that women were allowed to have, you know, pleasure from sex and I know that we had discussed this before and when we read true. after ironically Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, it kind of fucks up with you. And I just wonder how different Christianity would be if Jesus had had a wife, you know, would we not think of sexuality as being this big deal breaker for marriage and, you know, being, being coupled up with someone. And I know there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but it just, it's one of the things that this book had me thinking about. I gave it five stars again, because it really, really intrigued me. And I did some of my own research afterwards, but Anna was kind of insufferable a little bit. (laughs) Um, I just kind of, I started getting annoyed of her, just her voice, I guess. The book is big and it's all written from her thoughts. And I it just kind of went on and on and on. And I was just really interested in seeing, you know, like there's these landmark moments, you know, where Jesus um, is being baptized by John the Baptist and like all these different things. And then I just kind of, I was like, okay, I want to see like, what does she do when he's crucified? And, you know, these, those type of things. So that's what really kept me going was my 
my base knowledge of Christianity and the Bible and wanting to see how this fictional narrative wove itself into what we know biblically. So I also just applaud Sue Monk Kid must have had to read so many different translations of the Bible to get details correct. Obviously, the Bible has been translated so many times and written, you know, and and changed and whatever, so many times since it was first written that so many things are probably lost in translation. You know, how far back did she have to go to fully grasp and understand certain aspects of the Bible and certain aspects of Jesus and who he was? And so I really just the dedication that must have taken and the time and the research. I just applaud her. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. What I will say about its effects on sexuality and Christianity is that, well, so like Jesus was said to have lived a monastic lifestyle, right? So he was kind of like a monk, basically. And then it's like, yeah, he never had sex. The interesting thing is, if we were supposed to be like him, then none of us would ever, and basically humanity would die out. And so I think that the problem doesn't lie necessarily in religion exclusively, Mm -hmm. whether it be Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Like, it doesn't lie within Christianity exclusively or within religion exclusively. I think that the problem lies within the people who follow the religion. Because I find that a lot within Islam, you know, because not because it's like, for me, my religion is perfect. But like, then you have people who twist things, they say things, and then it's like, you're, you're going to hell. Like, you just are, you know, but it's like, for us, we're like, like, look, do we believe it's a sin? Yeah, you're not necessarily going to hell for it. You know, it's like, uh, hey, you know, you have good deeds, you have bad deeds, people sin, they repent, like, at the end of the day, don't condemn yourself. Part of it, I think, is when you are religious, you also have a duty to look at things very holistically and very, like, from all angles. And I think that that's why I can't be religious anymore is because I don't think I have the uh, need to actually like study the Bible, you know? And I feel like that's kind of where a lot of people that I know that are Christians and that are very religious, um, you know, in Christianity fall short is they look at only the things they want to look at. They pick and choose Bible verses and they're like, this is how I'm going to live my life. And, you know, they, they pick and choose like even the part that says that you shouldn't be homosexual or whatever. But then there's also parts of the Bible, you know, in the Old Testament that say that you shouldn't touch a woman who's on her period. And who's upholding that law, you know? And so I think that you can't just pick and choose. And I think that I don't want to side myself with Christianity and a religion if I'm not able to fully and holistically understand the text that Christianity is based on. And I think so that's, that's fair. Yeah, the, that's my thoughts on it. And like, and I'm just, I just don't think I care enough. I think that I can be a good person without being Christian. I think that I'm honestly better than some of the Christians that I know because I actually care about all human beings and not just, you know, picking and choosing that whitewashed Christianity lens that everybody seems to have on. So yeah, I think that, 
you will definitely like this book if you are a fan of anything like historical fiction. And obviously it's not like, you know, World War II historical Mm -hmm. fiction with a love story or whatever. Like this is ancient. Like this is, we're going back. (laughs) This is first century shit, you know? And I think that that was what was very interesting to me, that the characters were still very real and it was something that I could picture. And that could just be because of my background of Christianity. I think that if you like that historical, getting the details and understanding everything that's going on from the biblical perspective, I think that you would really love and appreciate this book. The book that I chose was Cursed by Thomas Wheeler. So this book is basically about if Excalibur, which they don't call it Excalibur in the book. They call it the Devil's Tooth. So basically it's about this teenage girl named Nimu. She is a part of this group of people called the Sky Folk. And it's actually interesting because it's a part of – it's a historical fiction sort of book too. So like for me, in my head when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, like this this is another world, blah, blah, blah. But it's funny because they mention England and you can you can taste little um, Arabic spices in the wine and stuff like that. So it felt very historical fiction, like almost like if our fiction, our history was rewritten to include magic and all this stuff. Anyway, so Nimu is a part of a people called the Sky Folk and she's a witch, but she has also been touched by dark magic. So basically the people in her village are like, no, we don't trust you. We don't like you. Go away. And so she feels like she is not welcomed in her town, in her home. Anyway, so then she goes this place like she's kind of like running away and her best friend goes with her runs into a boy who introduces himself as Arthur and you know they're flirting a little bit and stuff like that and she does reveal herself to be a witch so when she goes back home she finds that her home's been destroyed and she is given something she is given before she leaves a sword the devil's tooth Um, But she doesn't know that it's called that at the time. And she's told to give it to a man named Merlin, which she was raised hearing about Merlin, but it was more like children's stories. So she was like, he's not real. She runs away and, and has to defend herself. And she does use this sword to defend herself, giving her the name the Wolf Blood Witch because she she protects herself from a pack of wolves. And these bad guys called Red Paladins, and she murders just everyone. And it's kind of like this this sword becomes like a source of power for her. Anyways, she does run back into Arthur, and she and him kind of go along on this journey together. And he introduces her to his stepsister. Uh, no, it's I think it's his half-sister, actually. Morgan. Okay, here's the thing. I'm going to step back for a second. If you know the King Arthur stories, you will really appreciate this book because it does give you like Arthur and Merlin and you're like, all right, Arthur, Merlin, got it. But then they slowly give you more and more characters. So in the original books, stories, I should say, Arthur has a half brother named uh, Mordred. So the whole time I was reading this, I was like, I don't trust Morgan. So, because uh, Mordred is uh, actually the one who tries to take power away from, he tries to take Excalibur away from Arthur. He tries to kill Arthur and all this stuff. So in my head, I was like, 
Okay, don't trust her. But yeah, so you meet Morgan, who is actually uh, a pretty decent character. But I, again, there were little things that made me think I maybe don't trust her right away. And she is kind of like, she's human. She was raised human. She is human. But she's kind of like, she protects the Fae, which are anyone who is part mythical creature, like anyone who's witch, anyone who's tusk. A snake, like they have these just different types of people, and she has a refuge where she keeps all of them. And when she realizes that Nimue has been given the devil's tooth, she's like, "All right, let's use this to our advantage. Maybe, maybe you're meant to be the queen. Just because the sword will reveal itself to the one true king, she's like, maybe it chose a queen this time. So that's kind of the whole idea behind it. There's so much to the story. I don't want to give everything away, but essentially, she does start to feel more rage, more power. It's almost like the ring from." Lord of the Rings, where it kind of changes you just a little bit. And that's what she ends up realizing is that it is kind of changing her. It's giving her more rage. It's kind of giving her more power just coursing through her veins. Eventually, she does bring it to Merlin, and she finds out actually a lot of history behind the sword, behind Merlin himself, and about her and her family. She's given so much insight. And, you know, she's trying to pass herself off as this person that she's there. Everyone's calling the wolf blood witch. But she's like, I'm just 16. It's like, I'm just a 16 year old girl. Like, th- this is not me. And Morgan's like, did you slaughter a pack of wolves? Did you slaughter a pack of red paladins? Then, yes, you are the wolf blood witch. This is exactly who you are. Stop playing yourself down, basically. I always think it's funny, though, that the characters are like 16. It's always like the 16 year old is going on this crazy adventure. When I was 16, I was like, I was stupid. I was so dumb. Oh, I was really, really, really dumb. Exactly. Like, isn't it yeah. so funny? It's like, I just, I can't imagine being on a, on a quest like this, you know? Right. In the case of my book, getting married when you were 16. And- oh, but I, I imagined getting married all the time when I was 14. Like, getting married to a Jonas brother. Well, getting- of course. <laughs> but not that it would ever actually happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then on this quest, too, it's really interesting because there's this guy that they call the Weeping Monk, and he's basically just like this crazy warrior. And he's on the side of the Red Paladins, which are the bad guys. So basically, you have King Uther, which is U-T-H-E-R, Uther Pendragon. So you have him, and you have the House Pendragon, you have all of his armies, and then you have the Vatican, and the Vatican, they run the Red Paladins. So they are actually the ones who speak for the Red Paladins, and that's like their army. And the Red Paladins are the ones who are actually going from village to village of all the fake kind, and just basically slaughtering them, which is why why Morgan's taking in all these refugees. And then um, you also have the Vikings as well. And the Vikings are actually pretty cool too. But you don't see them too much. You do see them a little bit, but not very much. And so the Vikings, I believe, are run by this man called the Ice King, who also has an ice queen. Shout out, Elsa. So let it go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so so those are kind of the, the main players. Merlin, he is a representative. Not a representative, but he's kind of like a counselor to the house of Pendragon but like they don't really like him he doesn't like them like it's kind of like you know we just don't get along but he's kind of there as like an advisor almost for people to be like oh they have uh, Merlin the Great on their side and he's like I actually don't have any power anymore guys sorry <laughs> you know like that kind of thing but but it's more just 
for looks and for the aesthetic of it all. So that's basically what's happening. And then Nimue, she decides that she is going to take on the role as queen. She's going to she's going to fight, take a stronghold, which does kind of put them in some hot water. I almost can't tell you more past that because that part where she takes this stronghold and it, and it gets their whole army into hot water. I would say it was about 50 pages of straight up fighting and it was intense. And it was so amazing because the way that the book was written is like a show, which it is coming out, I think, July 20th or 21st on Netflix, which I'm very excited about because I watched the trailer yesterday and it looks phenomenal. But the book is written almost like a show where they have the scene and then it cuts and then it's from another person's point of view and then it cuts and then it's from another person's point of view during the entire fight. So the, it was almost like the way it was being told during the fight was just little short snippets of each person's during the during the fight during the war. It was just so cool, so well done. You know, you have Nimue, you have Arthur, you have Morgan, which is clearly like a Mordred character. You have Merlin. I will say that there is a Lancelot in there, but he does not go by Lancelot. And But you find out later. He goes by a name. I will not say who it is. And then someone just says, my Lancelot. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, and then actually later, another character, they're like, what's your name? And they were like, this is my name. And they were like, that's not a name. What was the name you were given? And they said, well, I don't like that name. But like, my name's Percival, which is, again, another person. Right. Like, oh my God, I was dying. I was- it's so cool how they weave that all in to this story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then even I had an idea of who, and I think they did it on purpose. I think they did it on purpose. I thought that they were going to have, because there's a character whose name similar to Guinevere. And okay. I was like, oh, is it like a male Guinevere? And it was not, but that was okay. I was not mad at it. I was still like, you know what? That's okay. Like, we're cool. Because even uh, a person who I think might be Guinevere made a cameo. It was just so well done. The fighting scene at the end, like 50 pages of just nonstop fighting. And I was like, I can't stop. I'm thirsty. I can't stop. Because I feel it's like you're in the middle of a movie and you're like, I just need to know how it goes. And there is very clearly going to be a sequel as well. Yeah, very clearly. And I'm so excited. It was so well written. The characters were very well written. I love the King Arthur stories. Uh, one of my favorite poems is, I believe it's pronounced The Lady of Shalott, but it might not be, by Lord Alfred Tennyson. Really beautiful. Uh, Lancelot is in that poem. So I love these King Arthur stories, but there is a book that I read a long time ago called Avalon High. I read it when I was in high school, and it's basically about reincarnated versions of like King Arthur and his and all of his people and stuff like that. Yeah. And I loved, loved, loved that book. And then Disney went to go make um, their movie version of it, and I was like, can we not? So I didn't watch it for years because I was like, I don't, I didn't want to see it be ruined because I thought it was such a well done book. And basically that book's like, all, again, all reincarnated versions of the characters brought to this place called Avalon High, which is, you know, play on where they're from. And the main character's name is like Ellie 
And she thinks that she's supposed to be uh, Lady Elaine, which is like this really lame character in the series, uh, in the King Arthur stories. But in the end, it turns out she's actually the Lady of the Lake and her job was to give Excalibur to Arthur. But then in the freaking Avalon High Disney movie, they, they did the whole thing. And then in the end, it turns out that Allie, which they changed her name to Allie, it turns out that she was supposed to be the reincarnated version of Arthur. And I'm like, well, then the rest of the story doesn't make sense. Because one of your Arthur with Lancelot, because they were meant to be together. And now she just cheated on uh, Arthur with Lancelot because she's a bitch. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, I was so mad. I was like, none of this makes sense. So I was really bummed about that because I could tell that they wanted to make it, like, more, like, geared towards women and they were like oh why don't we have it be why don't we have it be a female Arthur and I'm like cuz no just don't right what I loved about this book was that they weren't trying to do that they still had Arthur there and he was still a very strong character but you know he had his own flaws in this book like Arthur he had his own flaws and he was never trying at least in this book, I can't speak for the future books, but at least in this book, he wasn't trying to take away her power in any way. He was there to support her. And he was like, look, I will be here with you on this journey. And even at points where he, where he didn't want to be on that journey with her, he was like, look, like where he didn't want to be, you know, fighting this fight. He was like, but I want to be with you. Like, let's go. Let's run away together. And um, but then in the end, you know, he is he is there to fight alongside her and and to do what's right. So I think that was something that I loved about him because I was like, because I was like, it didn't take away his thunder, and he wasn't mad that he wasn't like, you know, maybe I should take the the sword. He even told her like, right. or I think actually Morgan might have told her, but someone told her like. The sword didn't show itself to us. It didn't come to me. It didn't come to Arthur. It didn't come to Merlin. It went to you. And so anyways, like, it was such a well-told story from start to end. Um, It left you on a slight cliffhanger, which I was totally okay with because I was like, all right, let's see where this goes next. There was a love story. Um, There were these characters that, like, dug up were dug up from the original stories twists and turns things that I didn't see coming I would give it a five I would give it five stars 100% this book is really good for anyone who likes historical fiction okay here's the thing this is good for anyone who knows of the story of Arthur like King Arthur and everything um this is good for those people yeah um because then it's almost like you're seeing King Arthur in an alternate reality. Right. But it's also good for people who don't know anything about King Arthur because then maybe you won't be comparing it. And maybe you'll you'll read it and be like, oh my God, what does the original story say? So it's good either way. It's good for anyone who likes like Harry Potter or maybe like Game of Thrones kind of books. It's good for anyone who likes those things too because it has, it's actually very violent in some ways. Like people get their heads cut off all the time, like blood, blah. But so it's really good for anyone who likes a good fandom, who likes a great story with fantasy and stuff like that. So highly, highly recommend. Again, the show is coming out on Netflix. I will say something that I'm not excited about. 
if you look it up on IMDb, the info, like the summary for the show says Mm -hmm. a teenage witch Nimue meets uh, or joins Arthur on his quest for an ancient sword, which is absolutely not the story at all. It's not. She has the the sword the entire time. She doesn't need Arthur. He's kind of more like a support system. And again, he never tries to take the spotlight from her. The commercial looks amazing for it. I am really, truly, truly hoping that they don't try and and take that storyline that they put on on IMDb and pass it off for Cursed because that's not it at all. Okay. Recommend the book, you guys. And hopefully I will also recommend the show when it comes out next month. Yes. Awesome. No, that sounds really awesome. Um, and it's interesting because it's a graphic novel, too. Oh, yes. Um, so that probably added to the experience of, of reading oh. it. You guys, I hope you liked our stories for the week. Uh, again, rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Bye! <laughs>